Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Our sermon podcast is available most places that you can find podcasts, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe to always get the next podcast. Christian, you are no orphan. You are not left alone to navigate the troubles of this world on your own. God has pursued you and desires you to flourish in his kingdom. Know today that God has provided abundantly for the Christian to thrive in life. Timothy Keller, in his book Encounters with Jesus, he describes the difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world, and quite simply he states that all religions except Christianity place people on a quest to find God. The people must live a certain way, do certain things, or even go to certain places to find God. Ultimately, the lesson is is that people are responsible to do something to achieve something, to accomplish something, to meet with God. It's up to you. It's up to your ability to behave, to be holy, to meditate, to understand, to journey, to leave an old desire behind and do something new. That's the message of all the religions of the world except with Christianity. Christianity is the only religion and the only faith where God pursues us. God has done all the work. There's nothing we can do to make God hear us more, notice us faster, or earn a relationship with Him. God has done it all. We have the responsibility of receiving what He has done. Now, a religion that is based on our ability to reach out to God and meet Him, that's a really miserable faith. Because we are never able to do enough to reach out and grab a hold of God. After my senior year of high school, I went on a mission trip to Trinidad with my church youth group. And Trinidad's an island off the coast of South America and the Caribbean. Uh, Christianity is the minor faith in that country. Islam is present, but actually Islam was a minor faith in that country as well. The main players of religion were Buddhism, Hinduism, and then blending in some island witchcraft as well, witch doctor religion. So as we traveled around the island performing our evangelistic drama, we noticed that in front of nearly every home were these bamboo poles with flags on them. And the flags were various colors. They were orange and red and yellow and and gray. And the flags had meanings. Some homes had five or six flags. Some had 20 or 30 flags. We thought that was amazing. And there were even some houses that had so many flags in front, there's no way to even count how many flags were in front of the home. And we later found out, talking to one of the locals, that the flags represented sacrifices that the family had made to their gods. The colors of the flags represented the type of sacrifices that were made. And to be honest, I don't remember any of the meaning of, of the flags except for one. You see, they made these sacrifices to get a god, to get a particular god's blessing, or to appease the gods, or to reach out and to connect to the gods so that the gods would hear them. And as I said, I don't really remember the meaning of the different colors, but I do remember the meaning of one of the colors of flags. It's one we didn't see that much. Only a few times we saw it, and whenever we saw it, once we learned what it meant, it just made my heart sink. As when we saw a black flag hanging in front of a house off of a bamboo pole, it represented a child 
sacrifice. And to think that there is a mother or father sacrificing their own child to reach out to get the God's attentions. That they would sacrifice a child to reach out to a false God, someone who isn't real. Oh, how twisted the work of the enemy is. And how twisted our perceptions are about how we connect to God. In America, the sacrifices are different, but we still make sacrifices because for some reason we believe that we are to chase after God. For some of the sacrifices that we make are for the pursuit of meaning. Others, we make sacrifices to pursue God. But such sacrifices are built on what we can do and our abilities. I think instead of calling ourselves human beings, we often should call ourselves human doings. And that's especially true in our culture today. We measure our worth and, and how we reach out to others and reach out to God by what we do and what we achieve, how we handle a situation at work or with family. We become human doings who are pleasers. We strive to please family and please co-workers and please strangers. And please, we try to please a work ethic and we try to please ourselves. And yeah, we try to please God. I say all this to warn you. As we read today's text, there are words here today that can play into our need to be human doings. There are words in this passage that can put a weight on, this, on us if we read it only with our modern American Western thinking that says we are the sum total of what we do. We are wired to tap into and go, ah, we are what we do. But our ability to be doings is not what this passage is about. We have to talk about obedience and obedience and love, but at the same time, in our text today, Jesus tells us that he's sending the Holy Spirit to be our helper, that the job cannot be done without the Holy Spirit. This is a passage that screams at us, look how much God loves you. He does not play keep away. He pursues us. He desires us. He sent his son over to overcome sin and death for us. He sent his Holy Spirit to be our strength as we live and walk in a new relationship with God. Yes, this passage will ask us to do things. At the same time, it reveals that God has already taken care of everything. And so, I know I started by saying we are not orphans, and that is the truth. We're not orphans, but not because of anything we've done, but because of what God has done. So hear these words today from John chapter 14, verses 15 through 25. And hear not what you are to do, but hear what the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit has done for you. Jesus speaks, beginning in verse 15, and says this, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it never sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. 
If you are in Christ, I love that passage of Scripture, if you are in Christ, meaning that you are a Christian, meaning you follow Jesus, then you are intertwined into the family of God and you are supported by the strength and love of God. God has pursued you and provided all you need to thrive in his kingdom. Let's take a moment and look at that verse 15, because those are the words we can stumble over. We're going to spend a little time there. We're spending time there so that we can get past being human doings and be a human being in God's kingdom. And those words and Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. How strong they are. How fast we gravitate towards those words and go, okay, I've got something I've got to do. The English Standard Version of the Bible places a little more force behind those words. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey. And admittedly, those are words that make us bristle a bit. If a husband said this to his wife, he would be in trouble, and he should be. And as a parent, <laughs> I understand these words a bit more. How often I have asked my son to do something for his own good, but he can't see that it's own for his own good. He just sees it as a task, and I say, son, son, please just obey. And he goes, why? Well, because it's your part to do as a family. We love each other, we, we love each other, and this is what families do. And my son goes, why? I say, please obey. And I realize as a parent that so much of obedience comes from love for one another. It's not just, I do this to earn love, I do this because I do love. So Jesus speaks these words to us. Love and obedience are connected together, and they're connected in a way that can be uncomfortable if we just read it as a human doing. Perhaps the reason is that as humans, we are, we are used to manipulation and coercion to get obedience and submission. But Jesus does not manipulate. He does not coerce us to obey. He sees obedience as a natural companion to love. William Barclay says this, In John, there is only one test for love, and that is obedience. And all through John and John's letters, we see this command in different forms of it. Second John, the letter, Second John, verse 6, says this, And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. First John 2, 3 says this, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. So if you want to know God, keep his commands. But it's done in a way to draw near to him. It's not done as a way to make us qualified to know God. 1 John 5.3 says this, In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. I love that part of that verse. His commands are not burdensome. You know, and the way humans desire obedience is often very burdensome. It's a heavyweight. So many times we put claims upon one another that are too difficult to carry. But God does not put a command on us that is burdensome. His command, his yoke, is light. John 15.10 says this, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. 
In that verse, again, we hear that echo. If you keep my commands, you remain in my love. There's a command, obedience, and love go together. But then Jesus reminds us that he is obedient to his Father. Jesus does not ask us to obey in a way that he himself was not willing to obey. He asks us only to do what he has already done for us. John is on to something. He's telling us that love requires action. If love is only expressed through words, then there's a problem. C.K. Barrett says this, John never allowed love to devolve into a sentiment or an emotion. It is, an ex- it is expressed, its expression is always moral and is always revealed in obedience. Let me read that again. C.K. Barrett says this, John never allowed love to devolve into a sediment or an emotion. Its expression is always moral and is revealed in obedience. It's not just a feeling or happiness, but it's always moral and expressed in obedience. Love is necessarily paired with action. Please do not confuse this idea that action earns love. Nothing we can do will cause God to love us more. God's love for us is paired, or Jesus' love for us is paired with action. He went to the cross for us. In our text today, he tells us that he will ask the Holy Spirit to be with us and be be for us. You know, in the same way, love with no action should be suspect. If you have someone in your life that are telling you, I love you, but they never do anything, That should get your attention. And you should really pay attention and probably put up some boundaries when you have someone in your life that says they love you, but they continually bring disappointment and heartache into your life. That doesn't mean they're always someone to keep away, but that should be a red flag that says, you know what, this is not what love is. Love requires action. Love flows out of obedience. Love flows from an action that blesses others. Love, spoken love, should not bring heartache and disappointment. You know, a person's words will match their actions. And if the two do not match, then something needs to be changed. Hopefully it will be their actions, but sometimes, yeah, they change their words. And they have been saying they love you and their actions don't match. And eventually they say, you know what? Truth is, I never did. What kind of action do you pair with love? When you look at the people in your life, how do you show love to them? And how do you pair action with your love for God? Now again, it's not earning love, but what kind of actions are showing your love for God? Because action is difficult, and obedience is even more difficult. Sometimes what we're called to do is challenging, and sometimes what we're called to do is consuming. Sometimes action is difficult because it collides with our independence. We put our plans on hold and achieve for someone else. You know, most of marriage is about putting aside personal desires and personal plans and taking up your spouse's desires and plans. But here's the trick, though. If you're both laying down your personal desires and your personal plans to serve the other, you end up taking up a whole new set of desires and plans, and those desires and plans take on the label of ours. This is what we, these are our dreams, these are our plans, these are our desires. 
It no longer is about one of you getting your way, but both of you working in tandem together towards new goals and new dreams. And I will be bold and say that it is similar with our relationship with God. It's not about exchanging my plans for His, but rather God's plans are crafted perfectly for us, and they are more our plans than just His. And it's about us learning and seeing that God's plan is our plan too. Well, it's easy to focus on the obeying part of the scripture. If you love me, you will obey my commands. But Jesus wants us to see clearly that we are not our own in obedience. So what are we to do? I want to point out these different ideas for you today. We are to live with confidence. Well, why are we to live with confidence? Because we are not orphans. See, the disciples were with Jesus in the upper room just before he would be arrested and taken to the cross. And what's about to happen to Jesus is now just sinking into the minds of the disciples. They're still not entirely sure what's going on, but they're hearing that Jesus is going to leave them. And, and they hear what they hear is that their world is going to be flipped upside down. They don't realize that this is actually going to be for the good. What they're hearing is, is we're going to be alone. And alone is a word that not many of us like. Sometimes we want to be left alone. We want the crazy of, craziness of life to just be put on pause for a little bit. But many of us, when we hear the word alone, we hear, I'm going to be left without help. And once that we hear that we're going to be left without help, we become human doings again. We start going, well, if I'm going to be left without help, I've got to figure out how to do this, and I'm not sure I can. If you're like me, when you read John 14, 15 through 21, you might even find this text a bit hard to take in. It's a bit of a tongue twister. There are a lot of great promises in it, but when Jesus talks about the Father and himself and the Holy Spirit and, and this I am in him and you are in me and I am in you, it gets a little confusing. But in that, Jesus is telling us that the Christian is not alone, but you are invited to the family of God. And not just a fellowship of other Christians, we're invited to have God dwell in us. And we should be interwoven into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, Jesus says that he is in the Father, and we are in Jesus, and Jesus is in us. The whole text is full of interconnectedness. Don't just see the tongue twister part of it, but see the interconnectedness of it. And perhaps that's why it becomes a bit of a, a tongue twister, because because we become connected to the Father, and the Father to us, and we be connected to the Son, and the Son to us, and the Holy Spirit to us. One of my theology professors used a painting called The Trinity. If you're listening to this podcast, I challenge you to just look up this painting. It'll come up real quickly on a Google search. It's by the Russian painter Andrei Rublev. It was painted in the 15th century. And you might look at it and go, ah, what am I looking at? It's, it's kind of scratchy looking, but it is a very beautiful painting. It depicts when God appears to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. And it's depicting God showing up as three visitors arriving, arriving at Abraham's tent. And we understand these three visitors. They're, they're God. And so it's trying to capture the Trinity, this painting. And so it looks like you have three angelic, sorry, three angelic looking beings under the oak of a mamre. And they're seated at a table. And there's a plate on the table, perhaps the feast that Abraham had prepared for them as his guests. 
But what's interesting about the painting, you have these angelic figures and they have halos around them and they're, they're dressed in fine garments and they're, they're seated around three sides of a four-sided table. And I remember my professor in, in seminary looking at us for a moment and saying, you ever wonder why this painter left the fourth side open? And I said, well, I don't know that I've ever wondered because I've never seen the painting before, but it was left open with purpose. The fourth edge of the table, which is on the side, if you're looking at the painting, it's the side closest to you, it's unoccupied, as though it's an invitation to sit down with God, an invitation for me, the viewer of the painting, to sit down with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for a moment and join them in communion and fellowship. We are no orphans. If you're a Christian, you are intertwined into that holy relationship with God. We can't ever be alone again. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are always with us. If you're a Christian, God is with you no matter what, no matter where you are, no matter how you feel, He is with you. So, live with confidence, because we are not orphans. But I also say with this, live with boldness, because we are aided by the Holy Spirit. As soon as Jesus lays on us that love and obedience command, that love and obedience go hand in hand, that, that thing that we could read and say, if you love me, obey my commands, we could go, well, that's a heavy weight. As soon as he gives that, he relieves the stress of that weight, that burden by saying, and I'm going to give you a helper who will be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. John, Second uh, John 2, 2 John verse 2 says this, because the truth, because of the truth, which lives in us, will be with us forever. We have the Spirit of truth who is with us, and he'll be with us forever. Jesus describes in John 14 the Holy Spirit as our helper, and he uses a special word there. The Greek word is parakletos. Now, it's not the word parakeet, uh, but it's parakletos, meaning he is the one who is called in. He's called into a court of law to testify or to plead on a person's behalf for the favor upon them. Now, I want you to note here, just because it means he's, he's called to a court to plead on our behalf, doesn't mean that the helper is a lawyer or a legal advocate. What I love about this word parakletos is it says that this person is a friend, not a hired person. They're an expert called in to give advice in a difficult situation. They're, coming, they're someone called in to help at a critical time of need, but they're a friend. Parakletos has a, a notion of closeness, of relationship, of friendship to it. So Jesus says, I'm going to send you a helper, a comf comforter, an advocate, depending on what English translation you're reading. But all those words have the word parakletos behind it. The one who is called in, the one who is your friend to fight on your behalf. And so we have the Holy Spirit, and He arms us with the ability to act and to serve and obey the Father. He fills in the gaps and the cracks of our inadequacy. He transforms and changes our abilities. He takes the heavy lifting, and He does it for us when it comes to the task of obedience. So we are to live with boldness, because we can act boldly. We can live boldly because we are aided by the Holy Spirit. So lastly, we are to live with holy eyesight. We are to have the vision 
have vision that comes from Christ. You might think this one sounds a little strange, but John 14 talks a lot about how the world cannot see, but the disciples, how they can see. It says they see with a holy eyesight. Well, it doesn't really say they see with a holy eyesight, but Jesus talks about how the world will not be able to see the Holy Spirit, but the disciples will. Jesus talks about how the world will not be able to see him. Shortly he'll be removed from their sight, but the disciples will be able to see him. So as a Christian, we can receive holy sight from God, holy vision from God, to be able to see this world differently, to be able to see the things of God differently than this world does. But I also find that the Christian can still try to see with worldly eyesight. But what we're really doing is living with worldly blindness. But we need to learn how to see with that holy eyesight. See, God reaches out to all of us, every person on this earth, inviting us to see and believe in him. On our own, we cannot see God rightly. We can't even see our own world rightly without God. We need that new vision, the vision that comes from Christ, that holy eyesight. We talked a few weeks ago about how faith, you know, faith is believing in what you cannot see. But it also means that faith becomes the device, the antenna that helps us to see and understand which is beyond our perception. How you cannot see a small microbe with your naked eye, but you can see it with a microscope. And faith is our microscope to understanding and seeing the things of God. William Berkeley suggests that you see what you are fitted to see. That is to say, an astronomer, when they look up into the sky at night, they see the stars so differently than we do. They have a specialized knowledge of the stars. A botanist, when they look at a plant, sees it very differently than I do. And the Christian, when they look into this world, they see this world and the things of God differently than the world does because we are fitted with a new sight, a holy eyesight. But if you reject God, you will not necessarily hear or see him at work. Conversely, we are called and we can see as Christians with holy eyesight. We can see with the eyesight that Jesus gives us to learn and to recognize God working in the world around us. And that's what we're called to do. We are to live with holy eyesight. But I warn you again, it's easy to be a human doing instead of a human being, right? And we can forget that God has already provided all that we need. And we can start to try to look with worldly eyesight instead of holy eyesight. And when we do that, we we lose sight. We lose the vision that God has placed before us. Lynn Anderson was writing and describes well, the founding of uh, colonies in our country hundreds of years ago. About 350 years ago, she writes, a shipload of travelers landed in the northeast coast of America. That first year, they established a town site. The next year, they elected a town government. The third year, the town government planned to build a road five miles western into the wilderness. In the fourth year, the people tried to impeach their town government because they thought it was a waste of public funds to build a road five miles westward into the wilderness. Who needed to go there anyway? Here were people who had a vision to see 3,000 miles across an ocean and overcome great hardships to get there and found a colony. But in just a few years, they lost that vision, and they were unable to see five miles out of town. They had lost their pioneering spirit, their pioneering vision, With a clear vision of what we can become in Christ, no ocean of difficulty is too great. Without it, without holy vision, we rarely move beyond our current boundaries. Jesus is urging all Christians to see with holy sight, to live with God vision. 
So today our text is telling us we are not orphans. God provides all that we need. Jesus provides all that we need. The Holy Spirit provides all we need. We are to live with confidence. We are not orphans. We are to live with boldness because we are aided by the Holy Spirit. And we are to live with holy sight because we are given new vision through Jesus. It is easy for the Christian to fall backward into old habits old ways of seeing and doing. And Jesus is calling out to you. If you're not a Christian, he is calling out to you to follow him and follow him and and be a, a, a Christian, to be redeemed today. But he's also calling out to us as Christians, saying, you are not orphans. You are to live courageously. You are to live boldly. And you are to live with holy sight. Will you do this? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Jesus, the Son, Holy Spirit, our Helper, thank you for your provision and all that you have made available to us. Help us not to see the world, help us not to see with worldly sight, and please keep us from becoming human doings. Lord, help us to enjoy your blessings fully, that we would live courageously, that we would live boldly, and that we would live with holy vision, holy eyesight, seeing this world as you have made it and given it to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.